your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be reading verses 36 to 46. Um, I'll back up to verse 30, uh, just to remind you of the context, but 36 to 46 is the uh, text for the sermon. This is the word of the Lord, uh, because God is its ultimate author, it has no mistakes in it, in the original uh, languages in which it was given, and we have the promised and faithful translations that it remains to us, the authoritative word of God. Listen carefully as I read. Verse 30, and after singing a hymn, he went out, they went out, rather, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will. But as thou, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, If this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your glorious word. And we thank you for your glorious atoning work, Lord Jesus, that um, we are reading about 
this this day, and uh, the the beginnings of your crosswork. Uh, well, actually, the 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 termination of your crosswork, I should say. Lord, we pray that as we consider this very sobering text, that you would bless us. Lord, we all have different needs. We need to hear, um, or not hear, but we need to. We have. We just have different needs. Would you please meet each one of us at our point of need using this text and its um, exposition to do it? Would you please, Jesus, be our preacher? We ask it in your name. Amen. Kids, have you ever uh, done something or been in a situation where you had to do something that was really scary, really difficult for you to do? Uh, Pastor Mark has uh, been in that situation when I, when I was a boy. There were a couple of incidents. I'll just record, uh, share one of them with you when I was a little boy. When I, there was something that I was thinking about doing, but I didn't want to do it. But I kind of needed to do it. And this was uh, when I was seven years old, and I was uh, at the ocean, uh, and uh, I was on a rock, uh, on the edge of the water, and uh, the wa- the rock uh, went down into the water at a steep angle. It wasn't right down, but it went down at a steep angle, and I could see the um, under the water for for a ways out. It was quite clear, and I could see fish and uh, barnacles, and I could also see uh, some other things down in the water, some uh, living things, crabs. There were crabs there. Um, and I was just a little boy, and I was had barely... I knew how to swim, but I, I had never swum in anything like an ocean before with all the creatures in it. And I was scared out of my wits. And I stood on the edge, and my, my father, as I recall, was trying to encourage me, and my uncle was trying to encourage me, you can do it, Mark, you can do it. It'll be okay. And I didn't want to do it. Oh, I didn't want to do it. I think I even maybe teared up a little bit because I was so scared. But finally, I decided I I was going to do it. And I pushed myself. Well, I didn't push myself. But I, I, I just leapt out off that rock into that water. And I remember I was... I was swimming like this, you know, because I wanted to get back out, uh, uh, and the rock was slippery, and I was trying to climb back up, and the barnacles were tearing at my feet, and it was, I was, oh, it was just, it was not pleasant. Maybe you've had something like that, something that you, that you really needed to do, but you didn't want to do it at all. And it's hard. It's hard to push through, uh, to do things that are difficult, Right? If you haven't experienced that yet, you will. Just just a matter of time. You'll be in a situation like that someday if you haven't already. But the difficulty that I had trying to get into that deep water, that salt water with all the animals and and various things at the bottom of it, um, that difficulty that I had is absolutely can't even begin to compare with the difficulty of the decision Jesus had to make in the night that I just read about, um, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is absolutely no comparison between the difficulty of decisions you or I might have to make in life that are difficult decisions but necessary decisions, 
and the, and the difficulty that Jesus had this night. Because you see, children, he knew that he was going to have to die. And more than just die physically, God was going, all the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon him that you and I deserve. Jesus took that punishment and that, uh, that judgment that God should give to us who are Christians or will become Christians. He gave it all to Jesus. Remember, God is infinite. That means there's no end to God, God's attributes. And so his, his anger at sin is infinite. That, that is, it's, it's, you can't even come to the end of it. It's so, so much. And that anger was all poured on Jesus when he was on the cross. And Jesus knew that's what he was going to have to endure. And he made the decision to do that this night. So, sorry for choking up there. Okay, let's, let me give you a little background and then I'll give you the two points that we're going to cover from this passage. So, as I just read, um, uh, I read a little bit prior to this. I said after singing of him in verse 30 and prior to verse 30, uh, Jesus uh, had been celebrating the Passover, the Jewish Passover with his disciples earlier that evening. And by this point, by, by verse 36, uh, the Passover celebration has already ended. It ended earlier in the evening. Uh, that was the time when he, Jesus instituted the, what we call the Lord's Supper, uh, which was to be a commemoration of the death that he was going to experience uh, shortly at the hands uh, of his enemies. Although he himself voluntarily gave up his life, it was not taken from him. Uh, but he instituted the Lord's Supper at the Passover, and it was also during the Passover celebration when um, Judas slinked away uh, to go and betray the Lord. So Jesus, Judas has already left, uh, so it's just Jesus and the eleven, and they have walked now, at this point, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and the eleven disciples. And it's probably, by the way, on the way, uh, as they're walking to the Mount of Olives, uh, on the way that Jesus informed the eleven who were left with him that they would all abandon him um, once they were confronted with what, uh, with Jesus' arrest and when they realized what Jesus was going to probably endure. Well, they knew he was going to endure because he told them. Um, and that they themselves might endure as his followers. And they got scared, and they obviously all abandoned him, as we know. And Jesus told them, it's implied in the text prior to this point in time, that that's what was going to happen. And each of them, of course, vehemently denied uh, that, that, was going to, that they were going to abandon him, but of course they did. So they have finally arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane, um, uh, which is somewhere on the Mount of Olives. Um, and... Uh, it's a place, by the way, the Garden of Gethsemane is a place where Jesus and his disciples often met. We know that from John 18, verse 2. And that's the reason, by the way, because Jesus and the other disciples often met there, that Judas was able to accurately guess where Jesus' whereabouts was after he'd gone to the chief priest and betrayed him. Uh, he figured that Jesus would be at the Garden. And uh, because that was their regular, uh, their regular uh, uh, thing that they did. At any rate, um, once Jesus and his uh, other disciples arrive, Jesus then instructs eight of them, eight of the eleven, to remain where they are, and that was probably at or near the entrance to the garden. Perhaps there was a, it was a gated garden, perhaps. And he wants them to remain there, eight of them, while he and Peter and James and John proceed a little bit further into the grove of olives. Um, and what follows 
in the text that we're looking at today is one of the most mind-boggling, most um, indescribably sad, and yet most beautiful episodes in all of human history. And that is, if you will, it was Jesus' dark night of the soul that occurs, that's recorded here. That brings me to the two points we're going to uh, cover in the remainder of our time. We're first going to discuss... uh, from the text, the agony involved in Jesus' decision to go to the cross. And then, secondly, we're going to look at the voluntary nature of Jesus' decision to go to the cross. The agony involved and the voluntary nature of Jesus' decision. First, the agony of it. Some people think that because Jesus was and still is the God-man, that is, he is God the Son, and fleshed, that because Jesus was God and is God, that somehow the agony that is quite evident he was experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't really real, because because he's God. And if that's the case, then they they would posit this somehow, and liberals would do this, uh, liberal uh, theologians, not not talking about politics there. Um, But they'll say, well, this this was a show, in effect, that Jesus concocted for the benefit of his disciples. It was kind of an act of sorts. Um, No, this was no show at all. Jesus' anguish that's uh, evident here in this text is painfully real. It's evident, first of all, from the state of mind, excuse me, from the state of mind that he exhibits. We read in verse 37 that he began to be grieved and distressed. Obviously, it's shown on the demeanor in his face as well as um, as what he was thinking and feeling in his heart. And it, and, it, and it came out in his countenance, undoubtedly. And so the anguish is evident in, in, in that state of mind, in his demeanor. It's evident in the confession that he made to uh, Peter, James, and John in verse 38 when he said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. God doesn't lie. Jesus doesn't lie. His soul was greatly grieved to the point of death. His physical, spiritual, emotional torment was so great at this point in time as he contemplated what was imminent for him in terms of what he was going to experience. It was so great, his his torment, that... uh, the least addition to that torment that he was feeling here in the garden would have resulted in his bodily death had he been a mere man. Now, he was the God-man, so he decides when he dies. Um, but in terms of his human nature, uh, he, was, he was just on the verge of death in terms of what a man can stand. Uh, and he was a man and is a man. Uh, and that's what he means by... Um, grieved to the point of death. It's almost, he's almost unable to bear the burden of what he's carrying. His anguish, his pain, his suffering is also obvious from the way he prays. We read that he fell to the ground. He collapsed, if you will, in a heap on the ground. And he cried out as a son in desperate need of his father. Verse 39, my father If it is possible, let me back up, I'm sorry. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face. So he fell down on the ground and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He's crying out for help. 
His anguish of soul is seen in the fact that an angel, we learn this from Luke's account, by the way, Luke 22, 43, an angel was sent from heaven to strengthen him in his hour of need. He needed the help of an angel, you see, uh, to, to hold him up, um, to give, to give uh, his, his um, human nature the, uh, the, um, the ability to go on, if you will. And not just his human nature, but him in his person, the ability to go on. And of course, although this is not uh, found in this account, but again in Luke's account, uh, the agony and the real, real, ness, the genuineness of the agony is, is most clearly seen perhaps in the fact that he sweat drops of blood. I don't know how this works, Kirk. You do, you probably do, but it seems to me that the capillaries, um, um, surrounding his sweat glands uh, ruptured and caused the sweat to be mingled with blood. And why was his agony real? It was real because he was a man, a human being, and still again is a human being. Jesus is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man. Now, it is true that the triune God, as the triune God, cannot suffer. It's a heretical notion to say that God, as God, can suffer. It's called patripassionism, and it was declared a heresy uh, in the uh, <clears throat> uh, first few centuries of the New Testament church's existence. God cannot suffer, as God. But the God-man the second person of the Godhead in union with human nature, which he had, can and did suffer. Because he was fully man like you and me. And his agony uh, was a direct result of the God-given assignment that he had that he was about to have to... uh, uh, engage upon in earnest the giving up of his life and the suffering of God's wrath on our behalf. He who knew no sin was going to become the substitutionary sin-bearer of us, his people. Assuming the guilt that had previously been borne by us and then suffering the indescribably horrific consequences of taking on that guilt and having that guilt, your guilt, my guilt, imputed to him, credited to him. He was going to become sin, as Paul says in um, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. He was going to become sin. Not only was he going to become, in, in, uh, in positionally in the courtroom of heaven, uh, a sinner because of the imputed sin of all the elect upon him, but he was also going to be spiritually separated as the God-man from his father. The father was going to pour out his wrath upon Jesus. And so he was going to have to endure the full weight of God's infinite hatred of and judicial wrath toward your sins and mine. And he was going to have to absorb it all infinite wrath. And Jesus longed, because he was a man, 
the God-man. He longed to have this cup of God's wrath pass by him. And he was terribly distressed at the thought that that cup would not pass by him. In fact, he decreed that it would not pass by him. And the agony that he was experiencing, the anguish of this night, was also, sadly, exacerbated by his disciples' utter lack of moral support. We read in verses 40 and following, I'll reread it. So Jesus realizes what he's doing, and he's praying to his Father. And we read, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. This is after, of course, he had, he had said, uh, remain here and keep watch with me. Remember? He said that in verse 38 and verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, second time, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Obviously they'd fallen asleep yet again. Behold, the hour is at hand, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. Here Jesus, confronting the most agonizing decision that's ever been made in all of human history, and his closest friends can't even muster sufficient energy to stay awake out of concern for their master and what he's going through. Pathetic. Utterly pathetic. But lest we be too harsh on the disciples... Just remember, we could have all been there and done exactly the same thing. Probably would have. How many times have you fallen asleep in a sermon? Jesus was talking and you, weren't, you, were, you were sleeping. Been there, done that. With really good preachers, you know. We fall asleep. because it's not convenient to stay awake. And we do that over things that are much less important than what these what Jesus was going through and that yet his men sleep while he suffers. Secondly, we've seen not only the agony involved in Jesus' decision to go to the cross, but now I want to look at the voluntary nature of Jesus' decision to go to the cross. Jesus desired above all else to do his Father's will. We're told that twice in this text, verse 39 and verse 42. And actually, we, and he, uh, we know that he did it yet again. He prayed uh, yet again in verse 44. Uh, similarly, saying the same thing once more. So he kept... Uh, beseeching the Lord, the Father, if, if it be possible to take the cup from him that he was about to drink. 
he desired to do his father's will. And it was a desire born. How could he desire that badly to do the father's will? Well, first of all, it was also the son's will and the spirit's will. But he desired it. It was a desire that was born out of Jesus' complete confidence as the God-man in his father, in the father. He was confident that the father knew what he was doing. And of course, that he, the son, as God, also knew, and the spirit as well. But he was confident that the father knew what he was doing, uh, evident from his assertion that all things are possible with thee, father. He was talking to the father and said, all things are possible with thee. I know that um, all things are possible that are within your will. And uh, so he displays his confidence in the Father there and the Father's decisions. John informs us that doing the Father's will, his Father's will, was the very reason Jesus came to earth. Over in John chapter um, 6, verse 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven. This is why he came down, he said. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, a reference to the Father. That's why he came. To do the Father's will. And he desired that will, even if it meant having to endure that which he dreaded most. He says again, not my will, but thine be done. After praying, if it's possible, take it away. And this Jesus' willingness to do the Father's will when it was impossibly difficult to do for Jesus in this situation for any of us, not for Jesus, but for any of us. Jesus' willingness to do that um, is an example to you and to me about how we should desire the will of God in our lives in any area where God is speaking and has or has spoken. We read over in First Peter chapter two the following words uh, regarding uh, Jesus being our example of uh, enduring suffering if need be. I'll start in verse 19 of chapter 2 in First Peter. For this finds favor. For, uh, it, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if When you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while reviling, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, you and I are supposed to be willing to suffer for the sake of what is right and for the sake of Uh, what God would have us do. We are supposed to follow Jesus, come what may. It's not easy. 
to follow Christ at times, to do the right thing, to trust Him, to obey Him, especially when we are afflicted and we are being, uh, we are suffering because of our commitment to Christ. It's not an inclination that comes naturally to us to obey God in the midst of suffering when we know that uh, if we disobey Him, we can escape the suffering or ease it some. No, you and I are constantly, whether we're suffering or not, you and I are constantly faced as sinners in a sin-cursed world with temptation all around us. We are constantly faced with the question of which we want more, God's will or satisfying the impulses of the old man within us who wants comfort, who wants convenience, who doesn't like pain, who doesn't like embarrassment, who wants to be first. And we are constantly, every hour of every day, perhaps most every minute of every day, we are faced with this dilemma. Who comes first, God or the old man within me? Will I or won't I forgive that person who so wronged me? Whom God says, and we read this this morning uh, in, in Matthew chapter 6, says, if I don't forgive, he won't forgive me. It's evidence that I'm not forgiven is what that, what that passage means, by the way. But will I or won't I forgive that person who so wronged me? Will I or won't I lie to get out of that predicament that I'm in? Will I or won't I entertain that critical thought towards a brother or sister in Christ, will I or won't I watch that unwholesome movie? Will I or won't I trust God even when the world tells me it makes no sense to do so? In each case, when that happens, we are faced with the same dilemma. Will I obey my master or will I defy him? Because it I want to. The old man wants to within. And it's then, folks, that we need to remind ourselves of Jesus' obedience to his Father, even unto death on a cross. Which is far more horrific than any other person has ever experienced because those who have died, uh, uh, have been tortured and killed, didn't experience the infinite wrath of God. They just experienced the, uh, the, the horrors of bodily mistreatment. Jesus experienced infinitely more suffering than they. But we need to remind ourselves, Jesus did it. He did it. He didn't have to. He did it for you and for me. And he did it for the Father. For his glory. For his honor. Because he loved him and knew his will was right. He desired to do his Father's will above all else. And Jesus freely embraced the dreadful, the indescribably dreadful task, assignment given to him by the Father in eternity past in the eternal covenant to save a people for himself. who All of whom deserve eternal damnation. And God would be right to damn every last one of them. And yet, 
Jesus was willing to die to save wretches like us. Because the Father wanted it. Jesus' willingness, his, his, the fact that his going to the cross was utterly voluntary, completely voluntary. Nothing happened that night that he didn't orchestrate. The fact that that is true, and, and the remainder all the way up until his death, the fact that that is true is evident from his reaction to the approaching mob. We read that in verse uh, 46, where he said, Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He hadn't even seen yet. They hadn't seen or uh, heard <clears throat> Judas coming. And yet Jesus already knows it because he's God. He's, he decreed that Judas would do all these things. He knew where Judas was at that point in time. He decreed where Judas was. Whether he'd already given, he'd already taken the silver or whether he was on his way with the, with the Roman guards and the, uh, and the, uh, the, the temple guard, rather. Jesus had decreed it all, as evident from this. This is what's happening, gentlemen. The one who betrays me is at hand. He's, he's just outside of the garden, waiting. You're coming toward us. He went out to meet those who were coming to arrest him. He didn't wait for the arresting party to come to him. He went out to meet them, the text indicates, displaying an eagerness to do his Father's will that involved in, uh, infinite suffering. He did that with eagerness that is reminiscent of what he did, uh, of the eagerness that he displayed when he, uh, Luke uh, records this in Luke 9, uh, 71, uh, when he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem at the conclusion of his ministry in Galilee. He resolutely set his face, Luke uh, 9, uh, 51 says, to go to Jerusalem like this is my task. I'm going. It's as if he's running headlong into the waiting arms of death and God's wrath. Not because he was looking forward to that experience, to what he was about to suffer. Heavens, no. But because it was something he was willing to endure for the sake of what would be accomplished by it. The Father's will and your salvation and mine. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. That vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. The fact that he willingly did this is also evident, not only from his reaction to the approaching mob that Judas was heading, but also from his words elsewhere in Scripture. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we read these words from Jesus' lips. He says, No one has taken... He's talking about his life. Uh, back up. Uh, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Fate did not take Jesus' life from him. 
Judas did not take Jesus' life from him, nor did the Romans, nor did the temple guard. Satan did not take Jesus' life from him. No one took his life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative. Voluntarily, he suffered. It was his decision and his alone. It was he who orchestrated Judas' betrayal, as I've already said, who summoned his executioners to the garden, who had himself nailed to the tree by godless men. And Jesus' wholehearted, voluntary obedience to the Father and his will was the only kind of obedience capable of saving sinners like us. The Father willed that Jesus undergo his wrath and curse on your behalf and mine. And that's exactly what Jesus ultimately wanted as well as God the Son. Because he loves you and he wants you with him for eternity if you're an elect individual, believer or unbelieving. If you're unbelieving, you're going you're to believe before you die. But if you're elect, he loves you and he died for you. To save you. No obligation whatsoever to do so. Every right to damn me first and all of you with me. But he said, no. I want grace for these people. And he paid for it with his life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you might say, oh, I know Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe Jesus did all these things. But you have not personally trusted Jesus as your Savior, the one who alone can save you from the hell that you deserve, and as your Lord, the one who governs your life, to whom you submit and surrender your life to. If you've not trusted him that way, you've not trusted him. And you're apart from him and you're heading toward hell right now. You need to trust in Jesus alone to save you as for who he is. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is prophet, priest, and king, as we Reformed Presbyterian folks like to say. And you don't get him unless you get him as prophet, priest, and king. King! Your life will not be the same. He will mess with your life. That's, there's a cost to being a, a Christian. There's a cost to being a disciple of Christ. Your life is going to change. It's going to change radically if you're not a Christian. I can't promise you that your life's not going to change because it would be a lie. But it will always be for the better. Even if it's difficult at times. But you've got to give up on yourself. Let's pray. Lord, if there's anyone who's listening to me that has not fled to you, Lord Jesus, in faith, and faith alone as his only help of, hope of being forgiven and of being reconciled to you and of going to heaven, would you please give him that new heart and that accompanying faith to trust you as prophet, priest, and king of his life. For the rest of us who are already your sheep, who are already your people, and in your family, would you please give us a new 
appreciation for what you endured for us. And may it affect the way we live. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, holy ordinances to observe uh, until he returns. Uh, we sometimes refer to them as sacraments, but some people don't like that language. But uh, uh, it's not problematic if you understand what it means. Um, but baptism is one of those ordinances, uh, one of those sacraments, and the Lord's Supper or communion uh, is the other. Uh, the Lord instituted both before he ascended into heaven. Uh, a record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places in uh, the Gospels and also in 1 Corinthians, where um, Paul speaks of it in chapter 11. I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. Starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord, this is Paul talking, I received from the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, meaning died. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I'll stop there. The Lord uh, ordained that this meal be observed in remembrance of uh, what he did particularly in his death, but really the death was the culmination of a life of obedience, which is equally important. Uh, Not only does Jesus have to pay the debt that we owe to divine justice, he also has to live the perfect life uh, that God must see. Um, Otherwise, uh, uh, we would also go to hell. So Jesus perfectly obeyed his own will, his own law, uh, and that perfect obedience is credited to the believer. And all that, his, his perfect life, his, his payment of, uh, through his death, uh, his sacrifice of himself, his resurrection unto newness of life, and his ascension, all of that is, is a, part of the atoning work of Christ. And um, we are to observe this in memory of all of that. Uh, the Bible teaches, we believe, that uh, the Lord's Supper is a sign of the covenant of grace, God made with uh, God the Father made with the Son and with Him uh, as the second uh, with us as with us in Him. I'll just put it that way. I was trying to quote there from the larger Catechism and botched it. Um, it is a sign. It is symbolic. The elements and my handling of them and our uh, partaking of them are symbolic of His His uh, sacrificial death. But it is more than just a mere symbol. 
the Bible also teaches that it is a seal of that covenant of grace. Uh, and uh, that is to say that the promises in the covenant are sealed by God himself. God, uh, the Son, who is the host of this table, uh, he is He is guaranteeing uh, afresh uh, the promises that are made in the covenant to those uh, who are in the covenant. He is saying, my promises are good. And this is my reminder to you, uh, I'm stating to you again that my promises are good. You can trust what my word says about uh, how you can be forgiven and uh, that uh, you can uh, that you are right with God if you are trusting in Jesus alone, that you do have a home in heaven, that you are a citizen of heaven, uh, that God will never leave you or forsake you, and so on and so forth. Um, and because it is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, the Bible uh, indicates in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, actually, that blessing comes through the right use of this sacrament. Now, uh, God, the Holy Spirit, uses our partaking in a way that strengthens us spiritually, if we're Christians. Uh, he blesses us, and undoubtedly that has to do with strengthening us in our battle against indwelling sin, uh, encouraging us, instructing us, all these things the Holy Spirit may and probably will want to do to different ones of us as we partake. Um, but the point is, it's a it, it, Paul describes it as a cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10. Blessing comes from partaking the cup if you partake, the implication is if you partake rightly, and that is by faith, that you, be, that you not be guilty of the things that I read in 1 Corinthians, that you're, uh, that you're cavalierly coming to the Lord's Supper, or that you're coming to the Lord's Supper and don't understand what's going on, or that you are cherishing sin in your heart uh, and still partaking. That, that judgment, uh, eating and drinking judgment under yourself, that's what Paul is talking about there. You must not come if you are, if you are um, playing games with God. You must not partake. You just need to watch and ask God to soften your hard heart and convert you if you're unconverted. Uh, but for those of us who are and who are rightly partaking, God wishes to bless you through this meal. This sacrament is not for everyone. Again, I've indicated if you are cherishing sin, you must not come. If you don't understand what's going on, you should not partake. You need to be a Christian. This meal is for for those who profess to be and, in fact, are Christians, genuine Christians trusting in Jesus alone to save them. Um, and the evidence that someone is a Christian, we, we here need to do our part to make sure that somebody doesn't uh, partake uh, at least, at least make a, a, a good effort, good faith effort, good faith effort at preventing someone from partaking who shouldn't partake. And the way we do that is, um, you need to be a member of a church that believes that Jesus is the only way to God, and it's only through faith in Jesus that you're saved. We we request that you not come if you're not a member of such a church. It doesn't have to be this church, but you need to be a member of an organized. Christian church that says Jesus is your only hope of forgiveness and you are united to Jesus by trusting in him and trusting alone. If you're a member of such a church, um, you are welcome to come and partake uh, as the elements are passed out. But if you're not, please abstain. Um, that's our way of uh, being careful. Because uh, Christians, true Christians, are normally... Uh, found in a church. In fact, this, this, the Confession of Faith says there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. 
So unless you're a member of the visible church, you have no reason to think you're a Christian. Now, you might be. It's possible. But that's not ordinarily how it works. So, um, if you are wrestling with sin, though, then absolutely this meal is for you. Not if you're rolling over and play dead to your sinful desires, but if you're wrestling, struggling against the old man, trying to put him to death increasingly, uh, but you're having a hard time doing it, aren't we all? Um, come, partake, be blessed, be helped by the means, appointed means that uh, Christ has appointed. Let's pray now and ask the Lord to bless our partaking. Lord, we come to you in Christ's name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who offers this communion. Uh, we, we commune with you and we partake of this meal, and we thank you that you have so graciously condescended to give us these tangible elements as means uh, of uh, bringing forgiveness, not forgiveness, uh, blessing to us. We know there's nothing magical about the elements, but as we rightly use them, uh, you by your Spirit uh, do bless us. We thank you for that. We ask that you would set aside these uh, elements from their common everyday use under the holy purposes for which we are now about to use them. Would you please honor yourself and would you please minister to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until we're all served, and then we'll eat together, and this likewise with the, uh, the wine uh, when that is dispensed. He's Paul. He needs help with them. You're going to have to serve both sides.
The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he also took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to the disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Again, please wait until we're all served, and then we'll partake. There is grape juice in the middle for those who can't, in good conscience, partake of the wine, but we would urge you to partake of the wine, which is around the perimeter. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your great mercy and abundant goodness that you have promised and confirmed to us in this meal. We rejoice that you are a merciful and a good God. We thank you. Uh, uh, that you do forgive our sins ongoingly, and we do ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the defects in our worship this morning, uh, any lack of attention, uh, any uh, improper attitudes we might have had, lack of faith. We ask that you would forgive us for these. Lord, we ask that you would assist us, Holy Spirit, 
to walk in a manner uh, this week that is worthy of our calling as Christians, that you would give us that grace uh, to be more consistently like our Savior. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our conversations to be to become uh, those who follow uh, Christ Jesus, that we would speak in ways that are gracious, that are kind. We ask that you would uh, give us, let our light uh, shine before others in such a way that they might give glory to you and might wish to become Christians themselves. So would they see, may they see Christ in us this week. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to persevere uh, in faith and obedience and to do so increasingly uh, as we grow uh, closer to that time when you will take us one way or another uh, before your throne. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.